Send us out. What? Send us out. What? Get, push us out into the water. Why? What? Start us off. Okay. Why don't you just say that? Because I was trying to be cute about it. Damn. I was this more like a boat. I was kind of saying it's a like podcast. I mean, it's a voyage. What? episode of nonplussed that's clancy and that over there is josh and we're nonplussed and we're back and uh yeah hi 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 hi. we're not recording during the day this time we're not this is back to our good old nighttime it is (laughs) back to our 12 a.m am i gonna sing so loud that i wake up the neighbors kind of recording situation but yeah, it's been it's been a neat couple of weeks. We've seen some reviews starting to pop up. Thank you for those those of you who've taken the time to rate and review and presumably subscribe. Yeah, no, our, we 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 hit over five hundred listens, which I thought was was pretty pretty rad. We've got like a single listener in South Korea <laughs> and the Netherlands and the Philippines, and there was one other. I tweeted about it the other day. All this to say, thank you so much for your ratings and your reviews and for tweeting about us and telling your friends. We don't put any money behind this. We're just, it's a passion project right now, and we love that you love it and that you're spreading the word. And yeah. Thank you, and please continue to do so. It feeds our egos and makes us think that like maybe we can actually do this. <laughs> for sure. Why not? Um, but yes, uh, what what's in the news this week, Clancy? Uh, Bob Iger has stepped down from Disney. He had, it was rather swift and something of a surprise. And of course, if by the time you listen to this, by the time you're hearing this, this is old news. Um, but it's relatively recent for us. Um, but yeah, he, it was a sudden announcement. He's being replaced by, um, Bob Chapek for, he was the Disney parks experience and products chairman. So he was overseeing basically like consumer products and, and park experiences. And even that like department kind of merged together recently. Um, and it's not to say that like Bob Iger is going anywhere. He's going to stay around and doing a lot of like creative things within Disney. So I think it's, he's mostly going to, I think he's, he, he's kind of moving into the backstage a little bit to kind of like, yeah, the verge article that we looked at was, was sort of nonspecific, but I think they've been nonspecific. Like the article mentioned something about like, he's still not going away. Like he'll still do stuff in the background, but, um, the new Bob will be the seventh CEO. Oh, I didn't realize their names were both Bob. Yes. You got old Bob and new Bob. <laughs> um, and one of the lines in the verge article said under Bob's direction, it was a quote from Iger, but I read it as uncle Bob's direction. Uh-oh. Um, I mean, you know, dyslexia, Is that a boy band? uncle Bob's direction. No, I don't. You made me hit a wall. <laughs> um, new Bob is only the seventh CEO of uh, Disney. Oh, wow. That's yeah. kind of impressive. Yeah. I mean, Bob Iger had a big impact on the brand. He, he, throughout his career, he's the reason that Pixar, Marvel and Lucasfilm are all under the, you know, Disney umbrella. Now he certainly grew the scope of what it meant to be a Disney property. I don't know. I don't have any sort of punditry about this. It's just, it's interesting. And yeah, the, big news. he, you know, he launched Disney plus as a success. Why mm-hmm. not? Why not close out your career as the CEO for having done that? And, you know, like it makes sense. Yeah. So this week's movie was Frank and Ollie. Frank and Ollie. So we, we were kind of thinking like, let's choose something that's a little bit different than what we've done previously. Sure. We hadn't done a documentary before. No. And uh, I feel like this was, uh, it's, it's definitely a story that I really didn't know about these, these classic Disney movies. I think we're telling on ourselves as Disney fans here a little bit and maybe explaining for those who don't really have an understanding of the strata of Disney fans. Um, I think there are people who are listening to this who would think that who would consider us quote unquote Disney experts, but we know because of the sorts of uh, circles that we have run in that we are bottom of the barrel in terms of like, Disney super fan classification. Oh, for sure. There are people that we have been to the parks with who could probably tell us all about Frank and Ollie's relationship and mm -hmm. their impact on what Disney is even outside of this film, because 
you, I didn't realize until you pointed out halfway through the movie that this came out in 1995. Yeah. I thought this was new content for Disney Plus. Oh, okay. that's how unaware I was. Yeah. And like, I sort of had a, I don't know, a general awareness of the concept, like the, the, the nine, what, what's the, the nine old men. Yeah. The sort of a general awareness of the concept of the nine old men and um, a general awareness of some of the animators. Some of these names were familiar, but most of what's baked in my brain are like Mary Blair, Mary Blair and Leota Toombs, the women for whatever reason, yeah. think because there were so few and they had the impact that they had. Like I, I just, I was not as aware of these guys, yeah, even I, though, um, and we'll get to this. One of the guys makes the point early on that if you name it, one of your favorite Disney scenes, it's probably a Frank and Ollie scene. Yeah. I, I didn't really know or, or necessarily, I guess, care about the context around all of the Disney movies, like animated movies. I sure. saw all of them and I appreciated all of them, but I never really like would di- dive into like, well, who directed this? Who who were the animators on this? Like that was never ever that was never something I I would really go out and see. Right, but again, like I could name five people we've been to the parks with who could and oh, who could list sure. it off the top of their head. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of what I'm saying is I'm I'm really excited. Um, we're telling on ourselves to the super huge Disney nerds, but we're sort of learning along with our listeners in some cases. And I think that watching content like this is going to just nudge us further into the hardcore Disney fan space. Oh, for sure. And I, I mean, this is, this is us growing in yeah. front of you. There's no like quote unquote plot. There's a narrative here. And the narrative yeah. is, you know, the life and work and friendship of these two men. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think just because of the nature of, of documentaries and this documentary in particular, because there are things I have to say about how this was done, <laughs> even though it was done 20 plus years ago. Yeah. Um, it's just going to feel like a little bit of a different show. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, for sure. So our research from this comes from Wikipedia and IMDb. Per usual. Yeah. So. And everything else is just kind of like our take on what was in the film. Yeah. Which we're kind of taking as fact here. So like, we're not necessarily going to be fact checking the movie or anything like that. Right, but, right. Yeah. We're just sort of like walking through us watching the movie, our thoughts and everything that was presented in the film. For sure. So it was written and directed by Theodore Thomas, who was the son of Frank. Yes. Uh, Theodore also um, directed another short documentary um, called Growing Up with the Ol- the Nine Old Men. Yeah. Um, which was included on the Diamond Edition DVD on Peter Pan. So I thought that was kind right. of a Well, let's, I mean, we'll get into it in a minute, but just because we've said it twice now and not explained it, uh, the Nine Old Men is essentially what Disney's crew of animators on his early films were referred to. Uh-huh. But we'll get to that. For sure. Um, I just felt like we were starting to throw out terminology <laughs> that we hadn't explained yet. Yeah, 100%. Um, but yeah, as I said, it came out in, uh, I said 1990, but it was September 9th, 1995 at the Toronto Film Festival and then sort of uh, released wide October 20th that same year. Yep. Um, it's it's pretty long for a documentary about two animators. When we started it, I thought it was like an hour and change, but it's 89 minutes. Yeah, fairly well paced, though. I, I didn't really feel at any point like I was bored. Um, so that was good. No. And it truly just felt like I was listening in on a, on a conversation with seven people about these two guys. This was rated PG, uh, for a moment of language and brief view of a nude drawing. (laughs) They say brief. It's one of the first shots of the movie and it's up for a few seconds. It's a boob. It's, it's the first boobs I've ever seen in a Disney film. Yeah, for sure. It's not just one boob. It's two boobs. Two boobs. Dos boobies. Dos boobies. (laughs) Yeah, the the movie's about Frank Thomas and Ali Johnson, who were animators at Disney for over forty years. Frank was employee number two two four. Oh, that's red. Yeah, um, we I don't I couldn't find a, an employee number for Ali, and he was hired a little bit after Frank. Um, because like Frank worked on Snow White, but Ali didn't. Anyway, yeah. um, the official synopsis on Disney Plus is um before computer. Gra- <clears throat> let me. I'll do my uh. I'll do my movie trailer voice. Before computer graphics, special effects, wizardry, and advanced technology, the magic of animation flowed from the pencils of two of the greatest animators Disney ever produced, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. Take a journey with these extraordinary artists as they share their secrets, insights, and the inspiration behind some of the greatest animated movies the world has ever known. Wonderful. Thank that was you. a good job. I had a bit of a stutter there, but that's kind of like my game show host voice, my quiz voice. Yeah. When I get really clear and deep and kind of focus on my that. diction. That's training. That's that theater degree I'm paying for still. The documentary kicks off at the beginning in 1931. Stanford University. Well, they're talking. Yeah, they're talking about how they were at Stanford and there wasn't really an art program. Yeah. 
And because apparently one day Mrs. Stanford, I didn't realize Stanford was like named after a couple. Yeah. Right. Um, so <laughs> I'm already learning things. Mrs. Stanford came into an art, art class and saw a nude cause it was figure drawing. Yes. And she was just like, no, no, no more art. This is, this is ludity and nudity. And oh that's when God. we get a good like five seconds of hand drawn titties. Yeah. So it, it did take me a minute to figure out which one was Frank and which one was Ollie. That it, was, it took you half the movie. To be, you kept asking, <laughs> which, one, which one is Frank? Which one is Ollie? So yeah, it, it, I, Frank I, had the square glasses and the square jaw and Ollie was the bald one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it is easy to figure it out, but when I'm also like trying to pay attention to everything else, there's like, there's a little bit of fair enough, but also, and I, I mean, they kind of make the point uh, throughout the movie is the way that they worked was very much in tandem. At one point we get Bible verse that describing their relationship. It's the, um, as iron wets iron. So man, so whatever sharpens each other, whatever it's from Proverbs and I don't care about it. But anyways, <laughs> um, well, it opens with, a bunch of people we're not introduced to yeah. immediately. It's kind of a cold open of kind of everything you're going to see. We're introduced to a handful of talking heads. We don't know who they are. Yep. So we're not actually introduced to them. We see some of the clips of them. You yeah, know, like going, Josh kept saying like, there's no lower thirds for any of these guys. So there's like, no, there's no lower thirds in the movie. They just put a whole title card up when somebody <laughs> new comes in. Yeah. Through the cold open, we're introduced to the legend essentially of Frank and Ollie yep. and how they were already talked about together, how people knew what they did together, how, um, oh, the guy that I call blue sweater guy until half an hour into the movie, we get his title card. <laughs> You're right. I've never gone any place on this earth that they didn't know and could talk about specifically scenes that Frank and Ollie did. How's that for touching? I mean, billions of people. And there was, a, I, there was definitely a, 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 I think it was early on in the, in the movie where they were talking about how like some people would think that Frank and Ollie was the same person. Oh person yeah. As if, Frank it was, and Ollie. as if it was one person named Frank and Ollie. Yeah. They were always together and like sort of really inseparable. And I just, it, that just that quality to me is like, that's just so rare that you can find something like that with somebody that you work with. Yeah. Yeah. The different talking heads, some of whom are their wives. Yep. Get into how special their relationship was. And I think what's really interesting they all seemed like really great friends. Yeah. They all like everybody got, a, got along and there didn't seem like there was very many conflicts or that the conflicts were handled in like a super healthy way. Right. That's a consistent theme throughout is that these guys never really seem to argue. They would disagree. Oh yeah. And discuss and debate, but they were never at each other's throats, like trying to one up each other. That was never their exactly. Goal. We finally get into it. You know, we get titles. We start getting title cards. There's this really cute scene at the very beginning where I guess when this is filmed, they live next door. They live near each other, but they're coming yeah. to the end of their own driveways and dragging their trash cans <laughs> out at the same time. And it's a cute scene, but that had to be staged, right? Oh, for sure. They Well, they, I mean, the camera was definitely set up across, across the road from where right. they were. And it was framed in such a way that they both came to the trash at the same time. And the conversation felt like the director said, well, I don't know. Just greet each other like you normally would. Hey, good morning. Oh, hi. Well, you sure got a lot of trash. Yeah, a lot of old manuscripts they didn't like. <laughs> Must have had a big party. <laughs> yeah. Don't know what happened this week. It was I thought cute it was and cute. silly. Yeah, yes. it was cute. Really, if you were going to be an animator or a, a cartoonist, it was really only for a newspaper that you would be able to find jobs. Right. And it was very rare for you to be able to 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 find a, a job where you're you're animating not for the purpose of something else. Right. And we think about the animation industry being uh, pervasive, but small and difficult to get into today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Imagine then when literally so few people were making animated anything. Yeah. And uh, really what, what kind of got Ollie and, and Frank interested there. I don't remember which one it was. I think it was Ollie and it was the, the, the dog in the flypaper. Um, yes. Scene. Ollie was watching Pluto with the flypaper. Yeah. And just really marveling at how they could make a dog be so expressive mm -hmm. and so human like, but still be a dog. Well, he he talked about how, how he fell out laughing. Yeah. Like it was just so funny to him, the concept a, and how, how, yes, how it was expressed through animation. 
but yeah, then we get to, to sort of Frank and him getting into animation in the industry. Like he never, he says he never considered going into animation, into the animation business because it wasn't a business. Yeah. And then he starts talking about having seen the flying mouse, that Disney short about sort of a shy bat. Yep. And that was in 1935. And that was 1930 terrifying. Oh like, God. Yes. Just the, the bats going, you're nothing. You're nothing. <laughs> God, that's right. That, it's like the, the, the animated personification of my imposter syndrome. Oh, no, it was, I had a moment. Yeah. So he got hired by Disney and I thought it was really interesting. Like they, they made it a point to say that he was making $17 a week. Yeah. During the depression. Well, <laughs> and we we got a little bit of this when we started watching the Imagineering story, which mm-hmm. might be what we do for a Patreon. Yep. Um, about Walt literally not giving a shit about money and, and Roy having to go, <laughs> but we have to pay for things, Walt. Right. We gotta we gotta find money somewhere. You'll figure it out. Right. Exactly. We talk about Frank's start, mm-hmm. and then we get this adorable little cut to him shaving. Oh, right. Like the electric, electric shaver. Yeah. He's like, I get my best ideas when I'm shaving. And then we get a little anecdote about how when they lived together in college, they would share the same electric razor. <laughs> okay, boys. Yeah. Um, But that's when we get that really cool shot of the original Disney studio. Oh, my God. With that sign. It's like it's like the Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphony sign. Mm-hmm. I just I'd never seen an image of it. See, this is what I'm talking about. Like my eyes are opening. This is kind of when they introduced the idea of Walt into the story and how how he affected Frank and Ollie. And right. you see this with a lot of great visionaries that they will insert themselves into the entire process right. of something and really focus on every single piece and be a big part of that mm-hmm. process so that like, you know, it, it has that same Disney brand. Right. And I just thought that was really kind of interesting to see that like they picked up on that really early. Yeah. That that was, something that they kind of had to be cognizant of that he was going to insert himself. And I mean, seemed to work well with them. Like, I don't think Disney ever surrounded himself with people that didn't. Well, no. And that's even the point that he's making as a, you know, as he talks about, he, he just sort of spits off that list of other people who were working in the animation department. Yep. There are four animators that, that stood out above all the rest of them. At the time we came, there was Norm Ferguson, who we called Fergie. There was Ham Lusk. And there was Freddie Moore and Bill Tytler. And we get caricatures of each of them that oh, yeah. are super cute. Oh, and, and th- that whole thing about the caricatures, like them, they would draw each other like with their different emotions. Yeah, and things there's like that. a line about how you say one smart ass thing in a meeting and you've got 50 caricatures under your door within an hour or something like yeah. that. Like everybody's anytime you have a thought or whatever, you're struggling to like make a point, but. You, he, he makes the comparison that, you, you know, if you're getting really passionate about something, you might get a caricature of yourself as Abraham Lincoln within the next 10 minutes. Yeah, We get a quick clip also as they're talking about what was different about Disney's animation style and how yeah. emotive and evocative these characters could be. And we get a shot of a character named Jenny Wren. And she's like a Mae West style bird at a courtroom. Josh kind of let out a little scream when he saw this bird on the she was She only cared about justice or whatever that line oh, was. Yeah. She was delectable. <laughs> and then come to find out that she's from an animated, like, Silly Symphony short, uh, yeah. Who Killed Cock Robin, <laughs> which is like an old... Um, I'm sorry, what did you say? Have you never heard of Cock Robin? No. It's an old English folktale, and, like, Cock Robin dies, and there's a whole thing about it. One thing I noticed at this point in the film is that anytime Frank was at the drawing table in his home, uh-huh. the drawings on the table and around him would change, depending on whatever they were talking about. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Super good attention to detail there, yeah. Right, but it caught my eye, because, you know, the the texture of the background is essentially changing. I don't remember what was on the table when I made that note. Mm-hmm. But I started making a note of when I noticed it changing. Oh, cool. But yeah, to your point, Disney was in every phase. He would criticize everything, but he had this, they mentioned he had this sort of understanding for universal appeal and you just trusted him, even though it could be annoying. And there's that one doodle that they do of him looking grumpy with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Yep. I can't imagine working in that in either situation right now. I can't imagine being able to, to, to balance kookiness with that level of dedication to artistry a and Mm -hmm. to always have the literal like head honcho over my shoulder going no i don't like it (laughs) and just criticizing and making that change they're telling this story about ralph wright doing this pitch to disney about pluto and disney's making these 
faces. And yeah, like you said, Ralph is worried. He's like, oh, oh God, what have I done? Yeah. And come to find out, Walt's just like, no, he should be doing this. This is what, look at my face. You know how sometimes when you wake up, you've got that bad taste in your mouth. You're just like, nah, nah, nah. and then you made the point for Walt specifically. Yeah. With the amount of cigarettes that Walt smoked. like There was definitely bad taste. Yeah. Every morning. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, it, it was, yeah, that was a super, super neat, like, kind of just as a, a neat look into, like, the dynamic of the way they work together. It was just right. really, really cool. So there's a really neat scene of Ollie looking out the window. And there's that pencil. I'm a kind of a sentimental guy, I guess. The way I've saved this pencil that Fred Moore drew Mickey's and Snow White Dwarves with and Lampwick and Pinocchio. Um, I keep it taped up to my window to remind me of how great the guy was and how much he meant to me. It still had a little bit of lead in it, and it's just... It was just such a neat little thing to have. There's probably no way that you could prove that that was his pencil. And that he's had it for 50 years. Yeah. But it's just like it serves as this reminder to him of how much magic was happening there. Out out of that one pencil. Yeah, for sure. And they start to discuss as they're talking about these important characters and such that Walt had this idea that there had to be a pathos in comedy and that they would compare that to Chaplin. And we even get a little bit of Chaplin in there. Oh, yeah, that was that was really cool. I liked that. And it was a turning point for Frank because he couldn't Mm -hmm. originally see pathos as part of comedy because comedy is supposed to make you laugh. Yeah. But gradually, there was this understanding that started to come from Disney's animators that if you made if you made these characters uh, relatable, that the comedy then it's that whole you can't have light without the dark and vice versa. Like for sure, you get the depth and the heights that much better. Yeah, and it's just really interesting that that's how they were approaching animation at sixteen twenty two. We rarely do timestamps on the show, <laughs> but at sixteen twenty two, we get a dog. Oh, that's right. We get a golden retriever. He was very cute. A very good boy. He's a very good boy. And then we're suddenly interrupting a massage. Oh, right. That was a little super awkward. It was a little weird. It's Marie, Ollie's wife, and they do this really cute kiss afterwards, but it's just like dog and then massage. And he's like hunched over and she is going to town on his shoulders. It was, it was. I'm so glad you finished that sentence. Less. Uh, uh. So they start talking about Frank's first movie with Disney, yeah. which is Snow White. And the Seven Dwarves. Yes. Frank animated the dwarves on mm-hmm. on this. Uh he he kind of goes a little bit into like who he was modeling the, the dwarves after and stuff like that. There's a video that they show with Walt explaining what the seven dwarves were and got to Bashful, who is kind of has a love interest in Snow White or, mm-hmm. or you know. But just the fact that they were like sort of making those relationships between the characters, even if they weren't going to ever exercise any of that on screen, but like building these characters out, like I think just heightened the level that the story, you know, heightened the storytelling that they were doing in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And they wanted to do a lot of that and suddenly realized that it was going to be more difficult than they thought. Oh, for sure, because they were originally planning to do it. Oh, we're just going to do seven vignettes. Like doing multiple shorts. Multiple shorts. together, And and quickly realized, no, that's not the way this is going to work. And they started calling it Disney's Folly in Hollywood. Yeah. Like everybody was convinced that he it was going to tank. He was spending way too much money on it. He ran out of money. Yeah. And finally, Roy Disney was like, you've got to show the bank what you have if they're going to give you any more money because the bank was going to cut them off. And yeah. one day. Yeah, so this fella came in, looked at the picture, didn't say a word about it. And as he left to go back to his car, well, Walt and Roy came running along behind him like a couple of kids and say, well, what did you think? And the guy said, ah, he says, you can have all you want. Finish it's great. It up. Finish it up. As much money as you need. This is great. Get it done. Get yeah. it done. <laughs> and then this is where we get the first title card for <laughs> one of the people that is that is talking on screen. Yeah, the talking heads that we've seen a few times now, but we get it. it's for uh, John Canemaker. Right. Or Kane Maker. I think it's Kane Maker. John uh, Kane Maker. Sure. He's an, uh, and his uh, sort of subtitle is animator, author, and historian. Mm-hmm. And he starts talking about sad emotions. Mm-hmm. And it's, it kind of strikes me that, yeah, that wasn't really something that you would ever really animate. No. And he's talking about specifically like Snow White's death and the dwarves crying at her beer and the idea of laughing at these, at these characters earlier and now being 
sad. Right. And I think that's that high and low that they were talking it's the about. Pathos. Yeah. But then we get the blue sweater guy. Yes. And this is the second time we've seen him. Yep. We won't know his name for a minute. But he talks about the difference between moving drawings, moving drawings and moving drawings, motion versus emotion Mm -hmm. and how sort of Snow White really was the first exhibition of of a successful execution of that. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of crazy that that wasn't something that had ever been done before. It seems so normal to have those sort of highs and lows, even in animation. I mean. Pixar. Right. But Snow White was the first animated feature. Right. They spearheaded that. They got it right almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're introduced to Frank's wife, Jeanette. And you pointed out that she has a a, a bit of a Jane Lynch vibe about her. A little her. bit. Like she's she looks like Jane Lynch's mom. Like I would be. She's got a similar personality too. Like <laughs> yeah. she's very dry. Um, I mean, I love her like she is a wonderful human. Yes. And she says that uh, Frank was one of the least mercurial artists she's ever known and that he has a relentless curiosity and he's always pleasant to be around. Yeah. And that just they've been married for so long and that that's just her her honest take on her husband is truly delightful. You're pleasant to be around, Josh. Most of the time. We get more of them cutting to Frank, acting out the physicality and saying the lines of some of the characters before then showing the associated shot. In the intro, he's doing one of the monkeys dances from Jungle Book. Yeah. And that's, they don't really address this ever in the documentary, but that's one of the things that they did. You could see stuff on YouTube like this all the time. They get people to, to do movements and then they draw them. Well, yeah, and a lot of the animators had mirrors on their desks to do the same thing with, like, when they were making mouth movements. There's one of those, you know, Disney Explains, you know, sort of film reels or whatever, where they're at Frank's desk and he's doing just that. Mm-hmm. It's for the Lady in the Tramp, and he's making oh, the mouth that's movements. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a YouTube video that I've seen a couple times about, like, oh, Disney reuses animations. But, yeah, they, they did, because all of it was hand-drawn. Yeah, you can't reinvent the wheel each time. No, and but like, even... once you have a good plate for something yeah reuse it why not yeah one of the things that really stuck out with me was when he was talking about the process of animation and how you know when you're an actor you you have yourself to start from sure whereas as an animator you have a blank piece of paper every time Mm -hmm. and that you have to kind of start from there and that's just really it's kind of a difficult thing to do because it's not a known quantity no yeah and he and uh cane maker it makes the point that they were great actors not just great animators because they mm-hmm. essentially acted out everything and then drew it yeah for sure and so when you're seeing emotions on thumper or on that well, the cat at the in the beginning of the rescuers mm-hmm. and they're making those they're acting that stuff out you you can see them yeah in and just the drawing to, and just to clarify here like the 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 footage that they're showing of Frank and Ollie acting in front of like a a, a backdrop like a, a like a cyclorama it's like right it's a solid white but they are literally uh, they are acting it out exactly the way that it happened in the movie as if from memory and that it, it just translates immediately out and it's 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 really such it's such a special thing yeah yeah twenty three fifty we get another doggo oh. And then at 2410, we get Teddy, who is one of Frank's dogs. Yes. Completely. And he's talking about how Teddy has a very expressive face. So you got this line here, Teddy. It's very unusual for a dog. It's a smile line like people have. You know, this line that comes down here it makes you look like you're thinking and gives you good expressions. It's just delightful. Yeah, they talk about how Ollie works and how Frank works. And mm-hmm. Frank says Ollie is very intuitive. Uh, he had a little sign on his desk that says, what is the character thinking and why does he feel that way? Yeah. And legitimately really, I like that. That's a, such a neat yeah, yeah, yeah. But thing I, to base off of. Mm-hmm. That's a thing actors do. Like that's the starting point for the actor. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that it w- should be a starting point for a good animator. Oh, and this is where I noticed that when we're talking to Frank, now the drawings on the drawing table are Pinocchio because they're going to start talking oh, about Pinocchio. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ollie says Frank is very analytical. He takes notes. There's planning. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about like the the thousands of lines. Frank's art style, or especially when he's when he's blocking a character, yeah, he'll he'll use a lot of lines because he's constantly tweaking, and I mean not really erasing anything, but just getting heavier as he gets 
and the, understanding the gesture right. and the movement. Whereas Ollie is a little bit more sparse, I guess. But deliberate. Still deliberate. deliberate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And yeah, it's just really neat to see that that was very two very different animation styles and they still have a cohesion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then we get Glenn Keane supervise. He's a supervising animator at Disney mm-hmm. and he like, it's where we start getting other people's perspectives of what they're saying. Yep. And he says, Ollie could kiss the paper with the pencil. It was the simplest way of making a statement in this drawing is that he was so light and deliberate, but then Frank would use a thousand lines to really find, he described it as nervously searching for that former expression. Yeah. And we get another title card. This is another time where they were like quick, quick back to back. And this one's um, Andy Gaskell, who was the art director on The Lion King. Oh, my God. And he said Ollie is more gut than Frank was his take on it. Yeah. But then Frank said this really cool thing about being an animator. And he's like, once you see the film of your drawings, you're hooked on animation. Mm-hmm. But he talks about like it's different than photography or sculpting or whatever. It's sort of one and done. But as an animator, it's almost like being a parent because you spend a lot of time with this character and then it's up literally living its own life and it's doing just fine without you. He also talked about like, how they would they would use a moviola that was an uh an editing console for like film yeah he just dropped that without any explanation yeah. what is this thing so it, it, it's it's the way that they used to edit edit movies when it was on film it would it, they would be able to look through like a viewfinder similar to like at the penny um penny arcade and kind of like roll it right they would it would they would go through it that way that the way they could go frame by frame and oh, see the movie that way. They have some of those in the animation building yeah. in California Adventure. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I, I just felt that it was really interesting that they would, he would say that he would look at it this way and then also see it projected. Coming from somebody with a film background, like watching something on a computer screen that's, you know, a, a small little view window and then trying to frame it for something that would be the size of your television or the size of a theater. During all of this, as we're getting a little bit closer to talking about Pinocchio, there's a real quick flash of a caricature of Frank and Pinocchio, but Frank is like the Geppetto. Oh, yeah. It was just super cute, but that's sort of super cute. Like, it, I want a print of that. It ties back to, you know, feeling like the character is your child. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really sweet. All of this is is very, I don't know, it's, it's edited and directed and calculated, but it, there's just these gems of lines like, uh, he says you had you had a contact with the magic behind the drawing. You oh. had to almost envision it in 3D so that you could then really bring it to life in 2D. And the way that he talks about it and the sincerity in his mm-hmm. eyes, I got a little misty about Aww. it. And then Frank goes on to say that getting that deep into the animation and then coming out of it was almost like coming out of a waking dream. There was a feeling that as you started to work on a scene, that you'd sort of encase you, whether you had a contact with the magic that was behind the drawing, not the drawing itself as much, but this whole feeling of this is a room, this is a forest glade, this is a rock, this is a castle, whatever it is that you're drawing. Here's your character in it. And you had to be able to see your character working in three dimensions, going in there and living in there, and you wanted to live in there. If the phone rang, you it's like a real dream, you know. It's hard to come out of this concept to pick up the phone and think, "Where am I? What, what's going on here today?" Hello, who's this? And then there was a smash cut to Ollie, and he's literally just walking trenches in his yard. There's oh, like a right. worn path. <laughs> he's like, "I like to, I like to walk when I think, and sometimes I think I'm tired, but oh then I really get gosh. out there." And he's worn a path, his thinking path in this lawn. This man, this old man, is adorable. Um, yeah. And this is where they start talking about you could never say anything in a meeting without getting a caricature of you about it. Yep. Uh, and that's where we see the caricature, the angry character with Walt and the cigarette. Mm-hmm. Um, we get another title card about before they met, where Ollie's talking about how their mothers were born in the same town in Illinois. Their fathers were both educators. Cut to Frank and Mickey and Baloo are on his drawing board. Ollie's talking about his childhood. He says he was Robin Hood. He made his friends become his merry men. But Frank was like, I, I didn't really have a lot of friends. <laughs> but they, but they, one of the things that they shared was books. Like they, they read a lot of the same books. And so yeah, they, they really bonded on, on those sort of stories, which I, th- I thought was really neat. We get another title card. This one says dear season. 
Yes. It opens with them bringing a deer into the studio. Like we see like a live oh, deer, right. like sniffing their paper as they're trying to draw the damn thing. And I mean, this is kind of all on the heels of the success of Snow White because it right. kind of changed the landscape for making these movies. Like they, they had a lot more behind them. They knew that the model worked. So now it feels like they're just running. Except now their challenge was how do you make a whole feature about animals interesting? Which is kind of an interesting thing to think about nowadays, of course. There's the Kung Fu Panda franchise, which isn't Disney, but like... Zootopia. Zootopia. Yeah. Now, when they're talking to Frank, it's drawings of Bambi on his drawing board. Yes. Yes. They start talking about drawing these characters and Thumper specifically. And at one point, uh, I think it's Ollie who says, seems like Thumper was always popping off. Yeah. Just Thumper popping off. Thumper popping off. And they made it kind of a funny thing, and I've never really thought about Bambi in this way, but it's it's kind of about kids in a neighborhood. Yeah. Like, that's kind of the way that they've framed it, and so it makes everything a lot more relatable uh-huh. than just a deer whose mom dies. Well, and it was yeah. a creative direction shift. They, they talk yes. about once they started focusing on Bambi and Bambi's friends, it became clear what this story was, right. but they make this, they tell this anecdote about how they were going on a, on an award show or something. And they're waiting for the curtain. And the guy who's about to pull the curtains like, so you are the guys who killed Bambi's mom. And they felt, <laughs> they felt like they had to kind of slink away from a teamster. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting with, there's a scene where the way that Thumper's interacting with his mother, putting on a face to Bambi, but then also putting on a face to his It's a mom. very human thing. It's a very yeah. kid thing. Like, And he acts out all of Thumper's sort of like, yeah. well, I thought Thumper should be like this and more more reserved and looking down and quiet. And that, and you see him, like they do that same thing where it's it's him against uh, 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 the the backdrop. Yeah, the cyclorama. Yeah, doing that that scene. And it's just, it's so incredible because it's it matches up incredibly. Like, right. It's, and this yeah. is one of the common themes of the documentary and I guess how they work is they start talking about the very simple and deliberate ways to get across that sheepish childlike response mm-hmm. to his mother in the, what does he say? He says a body attitude at one point I think, yeah. of the character and how that reads and how that's evocative of a sense of feeling, a memory of childhood. And just just a quick note here, like if we ever do Bambi, I'll probably say this a hundred times during that recording, but Bambi looks high as fuck in this in in that movie. Like, They're trying to keep his eye color there, which is like a red brown. Yeah. And then when it's zoomed out enough, it's almost all of his eyes. So he just, yes, looks stoned out of his gore. And just, but the mannerisms, like the really slow, like just kind of dopey mannerisms of this deer on ice, which I guess that's probably what a deer would look like on ice. Absolutely. That's what a deer <laughs> would look like on ice. And he's, it, he talks about that scene because of my, because of his own difficulties with ice skating. He was very sympathetic with Bambi Frank. <laughs> yeah. And but, sort of brought that into the character. Yeah. And it's at this point that they, that they assert that uh, they think Bambi was Walt's favorite. Of the animated films that he worked on. Oh. And just sort of as a throwaway line, they mentioned that it was seven years of work on that film. Oh, my God. Right. That's a lot. I mean, can you imagine Mm -hmm. like seven years of your life going into one thing? Right. We get another title card called uh, Ollie's Own Mystery. I don't have this written down. What did what is that one about? It's when he loses the um, the drawing. Oh, right. What are you doing? Marie. I can't find that damn drawing. The last part for the course. You want me to help you? Yes. <laughs> All right, just a minute. And then, like, as they're having this conversation, it zooms in on a post-it note that says, if you can't find it, look in here. And nobody's <laughs> touching that drawer. Right. It's so cute. It is really cute. And also, Frank has a ton of shit. Like, there is so many things in his office. Right. What, what they're comparing here is Ollie's very meticulous and organized, but he still can't find anything. Right. And that... Frank's office is a mess because the next title card is don't look for it at Frank's and they're just panning around Frank's office and his workspace. I guess what they're implying is that it's clutter, but I can guarantee you Frank can pull anything you name out of that. And we get a quick look at his bookshelf. There's like a long shot of, of some memorabilia. You get um, some busts of flora and fauna from sleeping beauty, mm-hmm. Mr. Toad. And then I, I actually made you pause in the books just cause I was interested in like, Oh yeah. What was on his bookshelf. And I saw, 
a hundred years of finished crafts and designs, <laughs> the art of animation by Walt Disney. Yep. Monet's years at Giverny. Oh, wow. um, there's a book on Damier, a book on Klimt, a, d- a book on M- um, Munch, Munk, Munk, the scream. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And just, so, I didn't realize that that was that, that's what that was about. That's, yeah. That's it's, okay. Um, that makes sense. We get a shot of, too funny for words. Disney's greatest sight gags. It's one of the books that Frank and Ollie did together. Mm-hmm. And the stills on that cover are from, I want to say it's a short called moving day. It's one of my favorite pieces of Disney animation ever used to watch it all the time as a kid. And it's, it's one of those things that as an adult, I look back on now and go, when you really look at where Disney started and what some of these silly symphonies were doing, these weren't necessarily targeted at children. The plot of that cartoon is that Mickey is getting evicted because he didn't pay the rent (laughs) and they're trying to pack up really quickly. And somehow Donald gets a fishbowl stuck on his butt. He gets a plunger to remove the fishbowl from his butt. That doesn't work at first. And the plunger gets stuck on his head. He finally gets the fishbowl off his butt, but gets the plunger stuck on his butt. And then he's running around and like the plunger's tapping as he's running. And all of this is essentially dialogue free. And ju- and it's just do- classic Donald tension mounting, mounting, and it's hysterical. And that's the the cover of this book. And now I want to own this book. Yeah, I mean we should. Yeah, we should. We should try to find it for sure. This ends like as as they're panning around Frank's room, they settle on a shot of this drawing of a woman on a wall that he's looks like, like he's getting working, some side eye. Yeah. And just over his shoulder is some other stuff. And there's like a portrait of a very stern and severe concerned looking woman yeah and then we get some real weird music it's ominous super ominous because smash cut to nazis yep we've got nazis in this movie too kids it's it literally cuts to it's the the title card is end of the golden age and it cuts to a literal nazi rally there's a hitler speech we get you know september 1st 1939 poland invaded headline yeah um newsreel images of the war And they start talking about how in this time is when they were making Pinocchio and Fantasia and Bambi, and none of them made money because of World War II. Right. This was definitely the the hardest part for the studio at this point. There was a point to where if some of these movies didn't work, that this might be the last ones that they do. Well, right. Because in a a lot of it, and they don't really talk about in this documentary, Mm -hmm. but at the time they were, Disney was doing war propaganda. Yep. And pumping out as many of those as he oh, could. Oh, that's as interesting well. that they didn't cover that at all. At all. Which well, is funny that they would bring it up, but then not show the context. Like, because it's I mean, more about the impact that the war had on the longevity of the business. Because they talk about Walt really being disappointed that Fantasia didn't do better because he thought of that as a new way to. It, it was a new way of looking at entertainment. He was able to create these very gorgeous conceptual pieces of animation to classical music. Yeah. And, and also the mixture between live action and animation and animation. And the last time we watched Fantasia, we'll probably do it for the podcast, but they, they make the point. I think it it was either in special features or something Mm -hmm. we watched about how it is essentially the sort of phenomenon that became the Nutcracker Ballet at Christmas. Oh yeah. Grew out of Fantasia. Oh, Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 I remember this because they, they in a sense repopularized Mm -hmm. that music. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Walt was really disappointed uh, about that happening. And during this time is when kind of the the Disneyland parks and stuff like that, the, the idea of that was starting to come to the forefront. Right. And not that's not really covered in this documentary. We just have that context since we just watched episode one of the Imagineering story. Exactly. But they do t- they do say it. They say that the parks and also TV helped right. kind of keep them going Aflow, during yeah. this time. Because after those three films, that's sort of when Walt reassesses and he goes, you know what? The last thing they really loved was Snow White. What they want is a girl in trouble beset by evil who gets saved. Yep. And that's when they did Cinderella mm-hmm. and Cinderella made a million dollars, but then they did Alice in Wonderland and it lost a million dollars, which is kind of crazy because Alice in Wonderland is, is great. Yeah. Like it's iconic. And even in mm-hmm. one of the old newsreel clips that we get in this documentary, yep. you see the girl who was the, the life model for Alice. Oh yeah. Cause you can see in numerous Disney documentaries, they talk about, the life models in the animation process. And I've seen this girl as Alice before multiple times. Yep. Then we get our, our next title card. It says on their own, because as you said, this is where Walt starts splitting his focus yeah. and moving away. And essentially it, it's the nine old men who are left um, with a little bit more. I don't know. It seems like Walt was delegating and trusting them to do their job. Yeah. Cause I think that he, he put together a team and cultivated that team over years. And then 
trusted that, okay, I can now step away from this or you know, and passing the legacy on and sure. knowing that you've built something that will continue to innovate and grow. Um, well, he, he yeah. got them where he, where he needed to get them. Uh, but th- this is where they start talking more about the nine old men and how each had strengths yes. that complemented each other. They had some good draftsmen. They had some guys who were good with zany bits. They had some who were specialists at female characters. And then Frank and Ollie were the guys who could do sincere and emotional animation. Mm-hmm. Um, we get another title card. John Colhane, author and historian. We finally know who the blue sweater guy is. <laughs> yes. Ha- like more than halfway into the movie. Right. Like, We've seen him twice already. And he is just super jazzed about Frank and Ollie. He's got so much passion for them as a topic and we get some quick clips they don't talk about 101 dalmatians but we see a dalmatian at a piano yep another title card how do they do that how do they do that okay so i this is what took me out or not really took me out but i had to stop it for the the movie for a minute because i didn't realize that they were using records to play back dialogue right while they were animating to animate the dialogue. Yeah. So they have pressed a record with just that dialogue on it. Like it's just baffling. And then plays that back while he's flipping through it and matching and making sure that it matches up. This process is bonkers. Yeah. I could not imagine doing something like this. It's so much production. So much production. And uh, it's just, it's so crazy that this was how they did this. Why Bambi took seven years. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And they're doing this about Lady and the Tramp. Mm-hmm. And we get a little bit from Andy Gaskell again, talking about how this, the spaghetti sequence really stuck out in his mind. Mm-hmm. And then cut to Kane Maker asserting that it wouldn't have worked if any other animator had done it because of how they approached it. And even how um, he notes, like, even, you know, the Tramp is a street dog. So he ends up eating more than Lady does. Yeah. Because he's hungrier. Yeah. The way that he explained that scene was I... I, I like turned to Josh when this was, when we were watching this and I was like, I can't handle this dude, but also <laughs> he's the way that he's explaining what they're doing on screen is exactly what you need to be doing with like it, it's, it's explaining what it would be like if these were two people. Yeah. If it were actors. Yeah. And it, it was just, it was such a, a, a disconnect to think that, Oh wow, this is, this is the way that they were thinking when they were making this. Right. Yeah. And this is when the, uh, the documentarian asks Frank directly, do you consider yourself a romantic? And he's like, yes, don't you? And he's talking <laughs> about how his idea of being romantic is. Yeah. You know, you'd have trouble defining what a romantic is, but I think it has to do a lot to me. Uh, with living with your dreams and, uh, dreaming quite a bit about, uh, uh, connections between things, the trees, the sky, the grasses, the birds, the animals, and you being part of the whole thing. Uh, a realist would have trouble with some of those concepts, but if you're going to go into an imaginary field like animation, uh, you better come equipped with that kind of nonsense. And I just love that as as an idea. Like When I think about the animators that I know and even some of my friends who work in animation, I don't know any pragmatic animators so they start talking about like what they do outside of work which is ollie has put in over four thousand hours on making model trains right and again there's a whole newsreel (laughs) clip of walt talking about there's six million hobbyists in this country who rebuild these trains in their backyards and uh our ollie is one of those backyard hobbyists oh my god it's that's, just, that's an awful Walt Disney impersonation. It is. It's more like a, a breaking nose, kind of a 1920s <laughs> radio show thing. But Walt refers to Ollie as a backyard hobbyist. And mm-hmm. he does. He built a scale steam engine patterned after the Baltimore, Ohio that you could ride. And yes, yeah. I, I thought it was just like, oh, it's model trains. It's something like that fits in your basement. No, this is a you can get on this thing. And it still looks it's one of those almost like um, this is going to be before your time. Okay. There was a sitcom called um, Silver Spoons. No idea. About this rich guy who's a toy maker and is kind of spoiled kid. Sure. And they had a toy train that kind of went through their house. Uh, okay. It's smaller than those ones that you see at like parks and zoos, mm-hmm. but people are still like a man on a tiny tricycle. Like it's that sort of proportion to human size. It's super cute, but also a little dangerous. It is a little dangerous. If any of those people fall off, it was going, it was going at a, at a pretty good click. Like, yeah, it, it was. was. <laughs> but Ollie's wife does say, 
the one thing that saved my life and saved his is his love of trains, but we don't get any context. No, not at all. And it's just like, Oh girl, what happened? (laughs) So we get another title card that says, so Ollie got a real train. He bought a steam engine. Yeah. And it's small for a steam engine. It's kind of more like what you see at the Disneyland park today and and magic kingdom. A little bit smaller than that, but yeah, it's, it's, it looks I like a, I made the comment that it, like, well, I didn't know if it was actually modeled after that, but it looked very similar. Right. But he's conducting it. He's sitting inside of it. It's pulling cars. It's the wildest thing. And it's just on his property. Yep. And this is where we see the two couples really like being friends together and yeah. going. We get shots of, of the of Frank and Ollie on different vacations. Oh, right. This is where we get the line about Frank playing the piano and Marie getting up and doing the Charleston. And, then and they these guys are so it. talented. And I think we kind of skipped over it a little bit, but like the Firehouse Five. Oh, right. We we did skip over it. They were the, the animators were musicians yeah. and they had a band called the Firehouse Five Plus Two. And there was a video of them playing Jingle Bells like they were all animating. Do you think that was a set? It kind of looked like a set. Probably not. No, that's a set for sure. But they were animating and then suddenly all the things that they were animating on were instruments and they started playing Jingle Bells. And it was just and they were playing it well, like they were guy pulls out a trombone and is just killing it. That's when we get Frank's wife, Jeanette, and her talking head. Yep. He's a ham. That's why he's a good animator. Got that um, charisma to say nothing of his uniqueness, nerve or talent. (laughs) And he says that one of the most important things to do in animation is observing. Yeah. And watching people. They, they, this is where they talk about how Ollie took one of the qualities of his kids sucking his thumb and pulling on his ear and gave that to Prince John and Robin hood. Yeah. And it was like that. You wouldn't think that you would need that sort of reference, but like a hundred percent, like you wouldn't know mm-hmm. to tug on your ear while you're sucking your thumb. It just adds that more realism, that more characteristic to these animated characters. Exactly. Yeah. And we get a little bit more from uh, Jeanette Marie about how, you know, they got, they were building houses at the same time mm-hmm. and then they got pregnant at the same time. They had their sons within a week of each other and just really sort of showing how their lives were intertwined. That's talking about them going to work at one point mm-hmm. because they commuted together since they were in school. Sometimes Marie would catch a ride back with them, but they'd be so focused on work during their commute. Like it was part of their job that yeah. she wasn't allowed to say anything and interrupt their work talk oh, until exactly. a certain street. And that made you go, wait, what? And I was like, uh, it's not as sexist as it sounds on the surface. She's, she's appreciating their creative process for sure. Cause I mean, this is, this is their way of coming down right. from, from working. I mean, it's, it's gotta be an intense thing that you're doing and you kind of have to reconcile that. Well, it's our, it's a new title card, 23 features and four books later where they're talking about a lot of this, right? Because they had collectively done 23 features throughout yes. their entire career, which is, bonkers bonkers and they open this little segment with them looking at the cells from fantasia of chernabog yes and at one point ollie's like i'd buy that girl same and it would cost an arm and a leg oh 100 that that book that they had with all of that stuff in it has got to be worth thousands i honestly hope that a good chunk of their work is in museums somewhere because oh, I, I would so. hate to think that a private collector is like squandering some of this stuff you know I, what yeah, i mean i would hate that it belongs it's- in a museum <laughs> And now when Frank is talking, Captain Hook is on his table, but they talk about how in the morning they'd start with new ideas all fresh and then they get done at the end of the day and be like, I don't know how much that worked. And it was part of their cycle. That's why Marie would keep a little bit quiet when it was going home time. Yep. Uh, We cut to Alice and Ollie was um, when they did Peter Pan put on Mr. Smee because he didn't want to then after his work on Alice, Walt was like, you can do Wendy's and and, um, Frank was like, that's going to kill him. So they put (laughs) Ollie on Mr. Smee instead. Yeah. And then and Frank was on Captain Hook and they would have little back and forths because Frank would want Captain Hook to be doing certain things so that he could draw these big grand gestures and make him this sort of big figure. Yeah. But then Ollie would want those same scenes because he really wanted to draw Smee reacting. Oh, yeah. That's just cute that that's where their their heads would butt on situations like that. And they had talked about like there. So like Captain Hook is playing the piano at one point and like, how, yes. how is it that you would play a piano with a hook? So I asked Ollie Wallace, who was a very good uh, pianist and organist, had a great sense of humor. And I said, Ollie, what can we do here? Can there something he could do with the hook? He could sort of rattle it here between a couple of notes. 
he couldn't really play dee da dee da da dee da da. No, he couldn't do that, but he could do a thing where he goes lump da lump da lump da lump bing. The thoughtfulness of that approach and building that into animation is what informed the music because then as you're watching it, because they play the clip like five times. Yep. As you're watching it, it's perfect. I think what they never specifically said was all of this consideration married to that music and married to the deliberation of thought and building this character really helps you suspend disbelief. A hundred percent. I was just about to say that. Like that's at no point do you feel that Captain Hook is not making that music. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it makes me want to go back and watch that movie now. Cause it's just, it's, it's just so much like that, that, that attention to detail where like my younger self, doesn't really pick up on didn't really pick up on that right because i sort of just let it wash over me but now is where i'm watching it a little more critically holy crap the sound of the hook notes hitting are different they have more weight than the notes being played with the fingers exactly and the fact that it syncs up so perfectly which again like how long did that take to do and i and it's just so incredible the work the work that they were doing. I feel like now, anytime we watch one of these animated films that these guys have worked on, we're gonna start noticing these things. Yep. They also showed uh some of the so a sequence from The Sword in the Stone where because the squirrels Frank, Frank did the squirrels. Yep, Frank did the squirrels, and where they <laughs> where the um squirrels are or the one lady squirrel is falling in love with the yes. boy. But just watching like and it's a short sequence, but the amount of emotion and like depth that they put into a character that's literally not making just making squeaking noises right her grief this is after like it's heavy as a child this is how i learned what heartbreak was yeah you know what i mean Mm -hmm. which is such a when you think about it a lofty concept to communicate in and of itself but in animation and then i got it as a child there's there's art. It's real it's true artistry what they did right and then pair that with that low with the high of the owl laughing, which is just so over the top, but also so genuine and real. I forgot how drawn out that scene of Archimedes laughing at Merlin is. Oh, man, fly all right. Oh, just like a rock. <laughs> It would have worked if it, if it weren't for this infernal beard. Yeah, just guffawing and rolling over and it just again it feels natural it feels like the the owl or or um archimedes archimedes is really really laughing at that yes. point and not it's not somebody else that's doing it it's it's uh and this is where they talk about being able to communicate all of this complexity mm-hmm. without complicating it at all it's about body attitude and gesture and posture and essentially showing versus telling mm-hmm but being able to show in such a way that there is a depth of human emotion, again, on these animals' faces. The scene from The Rescuers. Oh, right. At the very beginning, and Penny's sad about not getting adopted because they the parents picked oh the redheaded God. girl. I forgot about that scene, and it's heartbreaking and, you and see so real. Ollie, like his heartbreak in that cat's face. Yeah. Like, you could see it. You could see where he looked in the mirror to animate that cat's face. Jeez. Woof. Or meow, I guess. Um. <laughs> so we get our, I think it's our last title card. It's can you put it in writing? Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of, we were kind of touching on this a little bit earlier, but like these guys were all kind of speaking the same language yeah. as Walt was. Mm-hmm. And, and also they were such stylish gents. We get a lot of photos of them. Oh, for sure. Even later in their career, but they've got their cute, like, cardigans and plaids that match and their little gabardine pants that are cute i don't know they're just adorable they are adorable and now blue is on the drawing board this is kind of like the culmination of all of the work and stuff that they've done and yes. all the techniques and 
the animation style is still very simple in terms of like the characters themselves. They're very single tones. Sure. And, but the, but the amount of things that they can make the characters do, like when uh, Baloo is moving his pop against his nose and it, and it like crinkles. Yeah. It's just such a cool, very intricate, yeah, very deliberate. So, yeah. It's so, it's so neat to see that. And just the amount of detail that's in that. The yeah. animation isn't very complex. No, it's not. But what they do with the animation is, Correct. I think is, is a really interesting way for my brain to say it. <laughs> but they talk about going into the jungle book and how the nine old men were working on it. Yeah. And Frank and Ollie ended up having to do much of the movie themselves because this is when Walt passed. Yeah. And in everything that we see about this time in Walt's life, anyone who talks as having been there mentions, you know, we didn't know how sick Walt was. He was hiding it from everybody. We got this in the Imagineering yeah. story too. Uh, and that. Um, it was a very fast thing. Like it was. It was fast, but also he, he didn't say anything about it. And like right? people noticed, sure, he wasn't around as much here and there, but. Yeah, because it was kind of like, it was basically he took himself away and then two months later passed. Right. You were working with him and then two months later, that was it. Right. Which is, it's heartbreaking. Exactly. And him, and, and this, so this was the first animated film that Walt didn't see through Completed. to completion. Yeah. And as a result, like the Baloo Mowgli relationship was almost all Frank and Ollie. Yeah. They talk about how the growth and the development of that was so much of their work and how they work. Mm -hmm. um, and they even say at this point, Disney might've gone down the tubes if Jungle Book tanked. Right, because it, when you lose somebody like that in a company and, like, the next thing that's coming out is if that doesn't do well. The executives were already talking about, well, you know, who are we, who, maybe we can Disney Animation. Who would we find to lead it? You'd have to build up a whole new team. And this was essentially the Nine Old Men saying, no, we can keep doing this. For sure, that they were fully capable of continuing that vision. Jungle Book came out. It was a hit, and that really gave them reason. It gave... The executives, peace of mind, I guess, but uh -huh. the Disney animation could be lucrative, could still make money, could still produce good work. Oh, for sure. Without Walt's direct impact and influence. Exactly. Because Walt had cultivated these, like, had Over sculpted literal these guys. decades. Yeah. 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 It, it's a, it's such a, it's such a wonderful thing that all of this kind of came together. And like, this is really a neat look in, yeah. in terms of. Like this is again not not something that I was really ever paying attention to or really knew anything about. No, and it's just like watching watching this and then the the uh, Imagineers uh, series um, is really eye opening for for kind of how Disney made all of this magic happen. And also, like we're just the prime audience for it. Oh, for sure. Like from a from a market standpoint. We we consume plenty of Disney and are willing to consume more. Yeah. So this is kind of where the documentary kind of ends. Um, they don't they don't talk about any of the later work. They skip over one of my favorite animated movies, which is the Aristocats. Yeah. yeah the film essentially ends on Frank playing piano, very lovely. Oh yeah, that was nice. With footage of Ollie conducting his train mm -hmm. uh, around his probably presumably with friends and family, and it just kind of comes to an end there. Um, but in terms of their story, both men have, have since passed away. Yeah. I actually started crying in the middle. I didn't actually cry during the documentary at all, but like I was looking up and I saw that, um, I think it was, uh, it was Frank and his, his wife passed very close to one another. Yeah. In the same year. And I just mm -hmm. was like, Oh man. And it's recent. Uh, Ollie passed away on April 14th, 2008, age 95. Jeez. Frank passed away September or September, September 8th, 8th, 2004. Yeah. So four yeah. years before he was 92. Jeez. And that's, that's really where the film leaves us. And it's, it was really, really great. I really enjoyed watching this. We've got a, a couple of other facts. You want to take that first one? Yeah, so the house that the Thomas family lives in was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Holy crap. Which was kind of that's bananas it is and then there's an episode of the animation industry podcast uh with disney director john musker uh -huh. where they talk about frank thomas and he mentioned that at one time fellow animation great chuck jones who did the like bugs bunny cartoons oh right right 
had Chris and Thomas, the Lawrence Olivier of animators. Oh. And that's like um, a reference to how much of that performance he put into his work. Yeah. And that's Frank and Ollie. Yeah. And again, I, I thought this documentary was delightful. So delightful. I, th- I, I enjoyed it. There was only a couple of parts where I was like, okay, when the Nazis came, that was a little, that was a little much jarring. Um, it, yeah. It was jarring. Cause it was like, this ominous music, which we really had the Nazis are here. We hadn't really heard that much music no. in this. And then suddenly there was this non-diegetic song that comes in that just, ugh, it was, yeah, it, we had to pause it. It was right. It and was, I, we've already said I had problems with there no being no lower thirds and using title cards to introduce people. Right. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. These guys were delightful. I'm so glad that they existed. If you haven't watched it, if you don't know anything about early Disney animators, this is definitely one you want to watch. Yeah, it's it's a good, and I feel like this is a great jump in for like how all of that worked. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, it's a recommendation from us. Yeah. Yeah. So what are we going to do next time? That's a great, great question. So while we were watching this, there was a couple of scenes from Peter Pan with uh, uh, Hook on the piano. Mm-hmm. and it really got me into, I don't really remember that much from Peter Pan. Okay. So maybe, I mean, I, I know what the story is. I've seen Hook way too many times, <laughs> but I, I just, I haven't seen it in a long time. It might be a fun one to do. Let's watch Peter Pan. I'm fine with that. You want to do that? Let's do that. Okay. So next time, look out for Peter Pan. That's the one we're going to be doing. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I can't think of anything else. Yeah, I mean, uh, as always, rate, review, subscribe. Let us know how we're doing. I ain't telling you lie about us, but if you're enjoying it, you should let other people know <laughs> that you're enjoying it. Uh, and if you have any comments or any shade that you want to send to us, you can always send it to us at submissions at nonpluspod.com. Absolutely. Um, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at nonpluspod. Yep. You can find Clancy on Twitter and Instagram at CLNCY. And they can find Josh on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Josh Watching TV. Yeah. Without the G. Without the G. Drop that G, baby. Drop the G. Uh, so until next time, that's Josh. And that's Clancy. And we're nonplussed. We are nonplussed. <sighs> the sun's not out this time. It's not out this time. It's <laughs> dark as shit and it's it's 2, two a.m. Two in the morning. I guess I should finish my coffee. Oh jeez. <laughs>